And you can be finding Job chapter 3. And I was going to start out today with a question. I'll still start with this question, but I realize that today actually my question has to do with a birthday. And I realize that today's actually somebody's birthday, right? In fact, it's two people's birthday today, isn't it? Whose birthday is it today? All right, we have two young ladies turning 18 today, right? Jana and Lily. So happy birthday to you. You're very welcome. Happy birthday. I mean, birthdays are always special. I think birthdays of uh, two people born on the same day, two siblings born the same day is very special. What a blessing that is. And you know God's work in the Hamill family and their lives and really in, in many ways uh, miracle babies, miracle children. So God is very good. What a day to celebrate. Okay, now I'll ask my question. How many of you, uh, at least once a year, have a birthday? Okay, all right, awesome, good, that's fantastic. Okay, of course, there's always one that says no, and we know who that would be, right? Um, now, you don't have to answer this one out loud or raise your hand or anything, but do you like your birthday? Do you enjoy your birthday? Okay, all right. And uh, for some, maybe as uh, those, those numbers start to get a little larger, maybe you don't enjoy that birthday as much. But a birthday is something to celebrate, isn't it? Job hated his birthday. Like, literally. He hated the day he was born. His suffering and pain were so bad that he wished he had never been born. We are learning from the experience of this man in the Bible named Job, and we've talked about the man. He was good and successful and devout, and we saw that even people like that experience suffering and pain. We looked at the adversary, Satan. There is a powerful adversary that God allows to bring temptation and hardship into our lives. A couple of weeks ago, we looked together at the test and learned how painful experiences are tests. In each of these, we are learning what we can see through our suffering and pain. And the passage that we are in today focuses on how Job responded to the physical and mental and emotional anguish that he experienced. And so I'm just calling this part of our story that we're looking at the pain. And we're going to start by looking at the expression of pain, and we will see that Job was in a place of deep despair. So let's let's hear his expression of pain and listen to the deep despair that he described. I'm going to read for us in Job chapter 3, starting with verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job spoke and said... May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said, a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness, may God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it, may a cloud settle on it, may the blackness of the day terrify it. As for that night, may darkness seize it, may it not rejoice among the days of the year, may it not come into the number of the months. Oh, that... May that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it. May those curse it who curse the day, those who are ready to arouse Leviathan. May the stars of its morning be dark. May it look for light but have none and not not see the dawning of the day because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb nor hide sorrow from my eyes. 
Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. Why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? There the wicked cease from troubling and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners rest together. They do not hear the voices of the oppressor. The small and great are there and the servant is free from his master. Does that sound like despair? That sound like somebody who is just at the very bottom and, and literally saying, I wish I had never been born. Despair is a feeling that there's no hope, but, but it's the idea that there's no way forward. There's no way out. And it includes the, the, the sense of seeing no point in the circumstances. What's the point of this? What's the purpose of this? And, and Job wished he had not been born. And, and if he had been born, he wished he had died at birth or... Or even, we'll see in verses 20 to 22, he just, he just wishes he were dead. So for somebody who's in, who's in despair, sometimes they see death as the only way to escape. Otherwise, strong people like Job, when they are subjected to intense suffering and pain, feel despair. There are other examples of this in Scripture. Listen to what David said in Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. When the water is up to your neck, what's about to happen? You're about to drown, right? And he says, says, there's no way out. There's no escape. I sink in a deep mire. There's no standing. I've come into deep waters where the floods overflow me. I'm weary with my crying. My throat is dry. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. He was in a hard place. He was expressing his agony. Not only Job and, and David, but Paul said it very explicitly when he said this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble. And the trouble that Paul came into was not just a, a little bit of trouble. It was, it was significant trouble. It was serious trouble, which came to us in Asia. He was persecuted. He was imprisoned. He was beaten and left for dead. That we were burdened beyond measure. Do you hear it? Burdened beyond measure, above strength, he says, so that we despaired even of life. Paul either thought he was about to die or maybe even thought that death was the only escape, the only way out for the hardship he was experiencing. These are good people, aren't they? Job, David, Paul. And they had such a weight of problems that it it pushed them into a deep despondency and they were expressing their pain out of that. As we go through this this morning, I want to draw out some implications regarding suffering and pain. And the first one is that pain pushes you to recognize your human frailty. Pain causes us to look at ourselves and realize that that we are inadequate, that we are insufficient, that circumstances and pressures can come into our lives that push us beyond our ability to handle them. And that, that, uh, that exposes our human frailty. People do have a breaking point. You might have heard somebody 
with good intentions say, God won't give you more than you can handle. Is that true or is that not true? It's really not true. God does allow into our lives more than we can humanly bear in our own strength. And sometimes he uses our hard circumstances to break us of self-reliance and of thinking and acting independently from him. The hardships expose our self-sufficiency. I mean, when is it that we really cry out to God and ask for his help? It's when we're, when we're desperate, isn't it? And hopefully we do that regularly. Hopefully we declare our dependence on God daily. But sometimes we fall into a little bit of a mode of self-sufficiency and everything is calm and okay. And, well, Lord, I need your help today, but that's about it. Pain pushes us to realize that we absolutely must have God's work and God's grace and God's wisdom in our lives. As I was preparing for this, I uh, came across an, an article, and I'll share more about it in a few minutes, but, but as this individual was talking about his own experience and his wife's experience of some severe hardship, he, he referred to, to himself, and he said, uh, he said I, I am an insulin-dependent diabetic. And he said, even before this major season of suffering that my wife and I have gone through, he said, I realized that, that being an insulin-dependent diabetic was God's plan to increase my dependence on him. And then he, he quoted another individual who, was, uh, who had cerebral palsy, and he said, this man that I know spoke with a voice that was affected by his disability, and he said, my cerebral palsy has increased my dependence on God. And again, our pain, our hardship, our limitations, our tragedies push us to recognize that we are inadequate, we are incapable in our own strength to to not only just function, but to truly glorify God and fulfill God's purpose for our lives through these times. Well, how does a person get to this place? We have really a a window into Job's soul here, don't we, especially starting in in verse 20. And I want to take a few minutes and and talk about the, the latter part of this chapter as, as we, we hear Job talk about the experience of his pain, the experience of his, his pain. Let me start reading in verse 20. Why is light, and the idea of light here is, is life, right? So why, why do these people live or keep on living? Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter of soul? who long for death, but it does not come, and search for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they can find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden and whom God has hedged in? So what was Job experiencing? What I want to do is take some of the words that he used and phrases and put them into some common language that we might hear someone say, or that we ourselves might even say. And the first one is the word misery. And the word misery means toil without purpose. Toil without purpose. Or, or hard work, or a very hard experience without any positive outcome, without any reward. And the way that we might say it is, well, there, there's no point in this. What's the point in this? There, there's no purpose. There's no outcome that I can look forward to that seems to be positive, that outweighs the the negative I'm going through. You can endure a lot 
if you know there's a good reason or if there's some kind of reward. And Job didn't know. He was in the dark when it came to the reason and reward. And, and so we might even use this to question what's happening to us. What is the point? And then also in verse 20, he uses the expression bitter of soul and life to the bitter of soul. Now, if you put something in your mouth that's bitter, how does that affect you? And I was trying to think of different things that are, that are bitter. And there are a few things came to mind. But the one that I think of is when I was a little boy and, and I had a craving for chocolate. And I uh, raided my mom's pantry and pulled out a big bar of chocolate and broke off a piece and found out it was, what do you think? Baker's chocolate, right? What in the world? What's the point of Baker's chocolate? It's just absolutely bitter. There's no sugar in it. Because you have to add the sugar in while you're baking. It's just bitter. It's just that. And when you get something bitter in your mouth, you want to spit it out. You want to get rid of it quickly. That's the idea of this word. Something happens to you and, and, and you literally want to get rid of it. And, and maybe a way of verbalizing this is this is not what I want. This is not what I want in my mouth. This is not what I want in my life In fact, forms of this word in the original language are used ten times in the book of Job. More than in any other Old Testament book. There are references to this kind of bitterness. In other places in the Old Testament, Esau used it. When Esau heard the words of his father, that's when Isaac had stolen his birthright, he cried out with an exceedingly great and bitter cry. It's used of Esau. His cry was bitter. In other words, this is not what I want. I did not envision my circumstances, my life, turning out this way. My brother taking what rightfully belonged to me. It's used of Hannah, who was unable to have a son. The word is used of Naomi in the death of her husband and, and two sons. And, and so bitterness, this is not what I want is a response to circumstances that are hard. If I could, I would, I would spit it out. This is not what I want for my life. Now, we know bitterness also has the idea of an ongoing resentment and anger and negative response. And I would say that, that that's the idea. It's an ongoing negative response. I don't want this in my life. And we can even become hardened toward God and other people as a result of that. Then in, in verse 23, he says... A man whose way is hidden. So why, why am I still here if, if I can't see my way forward? That's the idea of this word. I can't see my way forward. I'm in the dark. I don't know what to do. What do I do now? That is a question that somebody in, in very difficult circumstances might articulate. And then he says also in verse 23, God has hedged me in. And this word means to be blocked I can't move forward. I can't move to the right or the left. I can't retreat. I'm blocked in. And and the verb form of of this word means that God's the one doing it. He's causing it. And that's what, what Job says. God has hedged me in. God has boxed me in. Every way I, I turn, it's like I run into a brick wall. I pray, and nothing changes. I ask for help. And nobody does or nobody can. I look at the options. There's no good option, not even one. And the thought comes to mind, if God is in control, he could get me out of this. But he's not. 
He is not changing my circumstances. He is not extracting me from the situation somehow. He's not opening a way forward. I'm just stuck. Then look at verse 24. For my sighing comes before I eat, and my groanings pour out like water. And these are, these are the verbal, the vocal expressions of pain. Now, this is minor compared to the kinds of pain that a lot of people experience, especially tragedy, tragedies and chronic issues. But I've told you about having an uh, accident on my bike and having uh, shoulder surgery and therapy and all of that. And I would say I've never experienced anything more physically painful than that. It was very painful. And, and at times, uh, faith would tell me, like after a night of sleep, you were groaning in your sleep. You were groaning last night in your sleep. And that was just because, I guess, even while I was asleep, it hurt. Now, sometimes I would even just sit around the house like, oh. <laughs> She'd be like, does it really hurt that much? <laughs> no, but she was very supportive and helpful. But just it's just that, that vocalization, right, that... Um, articulation, expressing. And that's what, that's what he's describing here. The idea is this, this hurts. Sighing, an expression of sorrow, groaning, a cry of distress. This hurts. And whether it's physical pain or emotional anguish, hardships of life, they hurt. Then verse 25. For the thing I greatly feared has come upon me, and what I dreaded has happened to me. I knew something like this would happen. Or I wondered if something like this would happen. I thought something like this might happen. It sounds like Job had a premonition of something terrible, possibly, that was going to happen. Or just in, in his, his carefulness and, and his conscientious way of, of caring for his family, maybe he imagined, oh, if this ever happened, this would just be the worst. And he didn't know why, again. Didn't understand the reason behind it. And so that led to his despair. And then verse 26. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest. For trouble comes. The word at ease means things as they should be. Quiet, calm, tranquil. Uses the word rest repeatedly in in this section. That's the idea of, of being settled so, so if you think of things the way that they should be, in fact, for Job, for a while, the things the way they were. I mean, his life was, was ideal, right? And, and, and he had his family, and he had his work, and he had his properties, and he had his God, he had his worship. All of this was in place. Everything was lined up. And now all of a sudden, all of a sudden, it's all shaken up. Trouble, agitation. His life was in turmoil. So we see what Job was thinking, and we understand how he felt. And, and later, in this account of his life, we will find that he does express hope in God's provision of a Redeemer. But here, he's caught up in his own thoughts. He is in a cycle of despair. There, there's no help. There are no answers but, but remember, this is, this is Job thinking in his own little circle, his own little world at this point. God is not in the picture in his mind other than, God, you caused this in my life. 
So another implication that we can, can draw from this is that pain pushes you to look outside of yourself for help. When you're looking within and you're looking around your immediate circumstances and your resources and, and nothing is changing and there's no way to make adjustments or corrections or fix it and you're boxed in and just in, in a place of anguish, that pushes us to look outside ourselves, doesn't it? Where do we look? We do realize that the Old Testament does not give us the complete picture. God did fill in the blanks to some degree for Job, as we will see later in our study. But we have the advantage of a more complete perspective, don't we? And we know that the answer lies in the one that God has provided for us as our Savior and our Lord, Jesus Christ. So the answer to pain is found in Christ. It is found in what we know about Jesus. And I want to go to three texts that show us how Jesus answers our pain. How Jesus answers our pain. So, let's go to one Old Testament text, and that is Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 is a prophecy of Jesus. This prophecy was fulfilled. So as we look back, we can see how this very specifically pictures for us what Jesus was like and what he experienced when he was on this earth. So look at Isaiah chapter 53 and verses, starting with verse 3. Isaiah 53, starting in verse 3. He is despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And what I'd like us to see here is that Jesus himself, Jesus Christ himself, in, in his full humanity, we believe that Jesus is, is, is God the Son, right? He is he, he is characterized by deity. He is God, but he is also the Son of God. He came to be a man. And so he experienced this in, in full humanity as well. So, so Jesus, while he was on this earth, experienced every level, every kind of pain and anguish that we could experience. He felt emotional pain. He is acquainted with sorrow. He knows what it's like to experience sorrow. He was separated from his heavenly father. He lost, again, in in his human experience, he lost, he he experienced the death of his good friend Lazarus. And he felt that in his humanity. 
So he experienced sorrow. He experienced grief. We would say that Jesus experienced emotional pain. Jesus also felt physical pain, didn't he? He was wounded. He was bruised. He was, he was whipped by his stripes. So he experienced the, the fullest extent of, of pain physically in his human life. So he knows what it's like. He knows what it's like to experience physical pain. And we would add to that he experienced what we might describe as a spiritual pain in verse 6 because he took upon himself our sins, didn't he? Because the sin and the, the, the guilt and the weight and the separation from God of that sin was completely on him as he died as our substitute, as our Savior. And he experienced every level, every dimension of the pain that's caused by sin. So we can say, can't we? We can say, someone understands. An implication of this is that pain pushes you to value and to love Jesus Christ more. Pain pushes us to value Christ, to think of him in a different way, to think of him as one who who went through all levels of pain. And when we experience, whether it's emotional or physical or spiritual, agony, anguish, pain, We can say, you know what, I know my Savior experienced this in a much greater degree. And all of it, all of it on him at once. And it heightens our appreciation for him and what he experienced. And and we value him not only because he went through it, but because he turns around and in his human experience, he identifies with us so that we can be transparent and open as we cry out in our pain, in our need to him. And the writer of Hebrews made this very clear. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, called him a sympathetic high priest and said, therefore, we can come, how? Boldly, that's right. Openly, freely, boldly, transparently to the throne of grace. So we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Whether it is emotional pain, whether it is physical pain, whether it is spiritual pain that you're experiencing, you can open your heart to God and not cringe and not be ashamed and not be embarrassed and think, I should do better, I should be better. We can just open our hearts to him and say, God, I need your grace. I need your favor. Not deserved, but free. And I know, I know, that you understand because you experienced every kind, every level of that pain. And it pushes us to love Jesus Christ more, doesn't it? Because he loved us. He gave himself for us. He went through all of this. He did not have to, but he placed himself under this burden so that he could redeem us. He showed his love for us in that way. And that just causes us to love him in return and love him even more. He is someone you can talk to. He is someone that you can be transparent with. Let your pain drive you to Christ because you know he understands. Now, we naturally ask why Job had that question. God didn't give him a full answer. He doesn't always give us one either, does he? But there is some scripture that helps. So let's see at least one purpose for our pain in Romans chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8, one of the most fantastic chapters in the Bible, if there is such a thing. You might want to sit down this afternoon, just read Romans 8 sometime this week, be encouraged by it. And he says, I'll pick it up at verse 18, Romans 8, verse 18, Paul says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Suffering. Suffering happens in this life. There are periods of suffering in this life, and we we could even say that this life is a period of suffering. When you compare it to the way things could have been, the way things should be, and God's purpose, and then ultimately the way it's going to be, I mean, this is suffering, even if you think things are going fairly well. But maybe it's a time of intense suffering. The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And here he, he begins describing that, that not only does this, does this life include suffering, but there is something awaiting us called glory, and we know that we will be partakers of the glory of Christ. We will be with him and enjoy all of that glory. We will be like him, and we will experience a level of that glory. We'll be glorified. So he talks about waiting for Jesus' return. Look at verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, our frailties, our inadequacies, our inabilities. We might say our pain. And there are times we don't even know what we should pray for as we ought, right? But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So we have help. When we fall before that throne of grace, and sometimes we just say, Lord, I don't know what to say. I don't know what to ask for. And we can say, we can believe that the Holy Spirit speaks in our behalf. On Wednesday nights, sometimes praying together in these groups, and and uh, Brother Ed, we get to pray together sometimes, and we were talking Wednesday night uh, about, uh, about something that, that Ed gives thanks for. Our holy companion. Our holy companion, right? That's a great way of of describing the Holy Spirit. He is with us. He is in us. He intercedes for us. He is our holy companion. But then look further in, in this text down to verse 28. And we know that all things work together for good. Stop for a second. Sufferings. Now, what comes later? Glory, right. I think that's probably what Paul's referring to when he talks about the good here. That long-term view. To those who love God, those aren't super saints. Those are those who are the called according to his purpose. So you've been called to Christ. You're a believer. You have a love in your heart for him. He's talking about you. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So so what he's identifying here is the fact that God has a purpose for you. There is something that, that compensates for what we experience now. And we can pray for God to be at work in us, to move us along, even when it's hard, even when it's very hurtful. We know the Holy Spirit helps us express those prayers. And then here's this assurance that God actually has it all planned 
out. There is a path for you to follow. He thought of you with favor, with grace. He laid out the course of your life with a goal in mind. And what is that goal? Is it your comfort? Is it your satisfaction? No, not necessarily those things. It is your glory. And that glory involves growing to be like Christ, as he said, being conformed to the image of his son. So the goal he has in mind is to shape your life so that you will become like Jesus Christ. Pain pushes you to make God's purpose for your life your purpose. Pain pushes you to make God's purpose for your life your purpose for yourself. I was thinking of some people that have been through hard experiences. I think it can be helpful sometimes to to hear how these truths work out in other people's lives, to know that, yes, this is not just pie-in-the-sky stuff. This this is real. And uh, one person that has has made an impact on me and that I've thought of and and read some uh, along the way since I was a young Christian is Johnny Erickson Tata. And she had a diving accident. She dove into Chesapeake Bay while she was there with some friends. She was 17 years old. This was back in the late 1960s. And severed her spinal cord, and the result was that she was paralyzed from her shoulders down. And I was in the library one time a few years ago, and I saw a book on the shelf. And there's a book that she wrote or that's about her, kind of her biography, very early in her life. But this was a newer book, and I pulled it off the shelf, and this was just, was just the, the city library. I pulled it off the shelf, took it home with me, began reading it, and realized this, this was her looking back, looking back over her life. And, and she was describing how God had helped her and, and how she got where she was. She, she says, I hated, when, when this accident first happened, I hated my paralysis so much I would drive my power wheelchair into walls, repeatedly banging them until they cracked. She said, early on, I found dark companions who helped me numb my depression with scotch and cola. I just wanted to disappear. I wanted to die. Sound familiar? I began to see there are more important things in life than walking. And having the use of your hands. It sounds incredible. But I would really rather be in this wheelchair. So now this is looking back, right? I'd rather be in this wheelchair knowing Jesus as I do than be on my feet without him. Wow. What what a statement. Then she talks about a, a friend who back in the 1970s, not long after this happened, was was encouraging her. And they were doing a Bible study. And she says, this, this friend shared ten little words that set the course for my life. And this is what, when I was reading this book, this is what really just grabbed me. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. She says, God allows all sorts of things he doesn't approve of. 
God hated the torture and injustice and treason that led to the crucifixion. Yet he permitted it so that the world's worst murder could become the world's only salvation. In the same way, God hates spinal cord injury, yet he permitted it for the sake of Christ in you as well as in others. Like Joseph told his brothers, God intended my suffering for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. He says, these ten words have set the course for my life. God permits what he hates to accomplish what he loves. I mean, here's a lady who adopted God's purpose for her life. I mean, she just just grabbed hold of that as a young lady facing a lifetime ahead of complete limitation, physically speaking. And she, she adopted God's purpose for herself. And you may not know what he's accomplishing, right? God accomplishes what he loves. You may not know what he is accomplishing, but you can know that it is something that fits his plan for his glory and for your glory, for you to grow in glorification, for you to grow in Christ-likeness. And you can hear that maturity, that wisdom, that gold just radiating from her life after decades of her experience. Commitment to God's purpose will get you through some hard times, but will it ever end? Is there something we can look forward to? Well, let's go to the book of Revelation and see how it ends. Revelation chapter 21. And yes, let me tell you about hope. As uh, John has the incredible privilege of a glimpse into what it will be like in the new heaven and new earth. He says in John 21 verse, excuse me, Revelation 21 verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also there was no more sea. So this is after everything. This is after all of the the tribulation and the millennium and the war and and all of it. And Jesus is the king. And now this this is the threshold into eternity right here. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. So what we're talking about now is the presence of God, being in the presence of God. He will dwell with them. They shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Awesome. Spectacular. Grand. Wonderful. What won't be there? Verse 4, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The former things are probably just everything that contaminated and corrupted Life as God meant it to be. Sin and the effects of sin. As one commentary says, everything that accompanied the cancerous evils of the old creation, a creation ravaged by the inestimable damage of sin, it's gone. With the ultimate victory 
that Jesus provides for us through the vanquishing, not only of the sensations of pain, but of everything that causes pain. Pain pushes us to delight in more than what we can experience in the here and now. Pain reminds us of the effects of sin. Pain is the result of sin. And one day, all that's going to be taken away. Whatever, whatever causes pain will be removed, eliminated. So this pushes us to delight in more than what we can experience in the here and now and to delight in what can only be experienced in the presence of God. That's what John's describing. Sure, the city will be spectacular, but really it's about being with God, isn't it? And him being with us. The pain of loss, of grief, of disease of injury, of age, of arthritis, of broken relationships, of disappointment, dashed hopes, infertility, abandonment, betrayal, anger, violence. These are hard, hard realities that we experience here and now. But these can actually push us to delight in God for who he is. Not just what he does for us. Not just the things he gives us. But who he is as our good and our great God. Another individual, you might know his name, Randy Alcorn. He's a prolific Christian author. Has a lot of great resources. Some wisdom that he shares in writing. And I think as I share these instances of people that are somewhat high profile, it's a reminder that no one is exempt from suffering and pain. Four years ago, Randy Alcorn's wife was diagnosed with colon cancer. And she died last March. And Randy shared the following words that she wrote. The cancer battle has been tough. However, my time with the Ancient of Days, we sang a song about that, didn't we, recently? One of my favorite names for God, she says, has been epic. He met me in ways I never knew were possible. I have experienced his sovereignty, his mercy, and his steadfast love in tangible ways, and I now trust him at a level I never knew I could. So, so here's a woman dying of cancer saying, I've come to know my God in a new and a deeper way, and she's delighting in him. He says, one unforgettable morning after meditating on Psalm 119, verse 91, which says, all things are your servants. He says, my wife Nancy shared with me what she had just written. My cancer is God's servant in my life. He is using it in ways he has revealed to me and many more ways I have yet to understand. I can rest. Remember Job's words? I can rest knowing my cancer is under the control of a sovereign God who is good and does good. Delighting in who God is. Now, remember the theme of our study? Seeing Without a doubt, this is Randy now speaking, without a doubt, as I saw, he says, 
So clearly, even when my tears overflowed, cancer served God's purposes in Nancy's life. And he says, I spoke these words at her funeral. The most conspicuous thing about Nancy and her cancer years was her wonderfully big view. Do you hear it? View of God. And he says that huge and beautiful and transforming view of God, he said at her funeral, is yours for the taking. So why not spend the rest of your life pursuing it? Delighting in God. What can you see through your suffering and pain? Your frailty, which causes you to depend on God. Do you see it? The opportunity to adopt God's purpose for your life as your own. Do you want it? That everything that disappoints you and hurts you in this life, in the here and now, points you to delight in God. To love and worship Him more deeply and fully now. And to anticipate being with Him and enjoying His presence forever. Will you see your pain? Not only as something hard, but a holy instrument in the hands of your loving God to glorify himself, to grow you, and prepare you for eternity. Let's bow together, please. Let's bow our heads and quiet our hearts. And would you respond to him? What do you see? What does God want you to see? What can you see? Does it push you to depend on God? Adopt his purpose for your life as your own. Delight in him now. Anticipate being with him forever. Father, help us, I pray, to see what you intend for us to see. To accept these truths, learn from these examples, and be shaped by what you're doing in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name.